Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 68. Our big Bible question of the day is, why do Christians eat bread and drink juice or wine in church? So welcome into the podcast, everybody. I'm your host, Chase Thompson. I am a pastor in Salinas, California at Valley Baptist Church in the Monterey, Salinas, Pacific Grove, Seaside area. If you're in that area, why don't you come join us for church this morning? We start at 1030 a.m. And if you happen to miss that, we'll be uh, going Wednesday night at 630 p.m. And we are located at 320 Church Street, right across from the Steinbeck Library in the heart of downtown Salinas. And as I said, today is the Lord's Day, and that means a shorter-than-normal podcast for us. So you can rest your ears, wash your hands, and enjoy your extra time this Sunday. Now, as a pastor, much of my Saturday, in fact, a big chunk of it, is really spent getting ready for Sunday. And so therefore, it's kind of my philosophy to make it a little easier and a little shorter than normal on the Saturday night podcast. So hopefully today will be short and sweet, but we are reading some great Bible passages, and I've just got a fantastic Spurgeon passage for us. It was like super encouraging to me, and it's something he shared that I've never read or thought about before. So I think it's going to be encouraging to you too. So our Bible passages today, Exodus 19, Job 37, Luke 22, and 2 Corinthians 7. I do want to invite you to check out our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. I want to ask you in the nicest way possible to leave us a review on iTunes and to share the show with your friends on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and things like that. Our goal is to get people hearing the Word of God, and you help us with that goal. You join together in the mission when you share the show on social media or by word of mouth. In Luke 22, Jesus is with his disciples for their last meal together before the crucifixion, and he talks about his body broken for them. So let's start in verse 14 and look at that. When the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I fervently desire to eat the Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves, for I tell you, from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of God will go away as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who was going to do it. So why are Christians all across the world going to eat crackers or bread and drink the fruit of the vine during church today? Is it for a tasty snack, which is kind of how a young little Chase thought of communion when he was a kid at Briarwood Presbyterian Church back in Birmingham, Alabama? Uh, I thought it was a good snack. The grape juice was tasty. Uh, the crackers were tiny little thumbnail-sized things that were kind of bitter and odd and uh, unleavened and 
Uh, okay, so that part wasn't the greatest snack, but the grape juice was really amazing. Uh, so is that what communion is about? Or is it a way to sort of break up the monotony in church from time to time? Is it an act of cannibalism, which some people thought? Or is it something much more than that? And spoiler alert, it is something much more than that. Now, the practice of communion in church is so unusual then the first and second century, uh, in the early 200s, in fact, a Roman writer accused Christians of consuming infants, yes, babies, during the worship times. And if you read the passage, it's pretty obvious he's kind of conflating or combining the nativity story and the communion element of worship in a weird sort of way. Obviously, Christians never did that. But maybe you didn't know this. In the early church, when uh, the officiant did communion, he would often say in Latin, hoc est corpus meum, which is the Latin phrase for this is my body, uh, which is what Jesus said at the Last Supper. Now, hoc est corpus meum, if it sounds a little bit familiar to you, is the probable origin for the magical phrase hocus pocus. It shows that people outside of the church have been confused for years about the practice of Christians taking communion and what exactly it means. So let's look at 1 Corinthians real quick and read Paul's explanation of communion. This is 1 Corinthians 11.23. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he also took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant established by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's day until he comes. So, we see death there. Why are Christians so focused on death, some people wonder. It's kind of weird and morbid, right? Except, you know what? And, and, and I, I think a lot of people in this corona, uh, coronavirus outbreak right now are sort of more focused on death than normal because death is the most universal reality we all faced. It's the most terrifying thing for rich, poor, powerful, weak, healthy, strong, whatever. We all know death is coming for us one day. If you're young, you know, you're teens or 20s or whatever, you care very little about death. You're not really worried about it unless death has stolen someone precious from you. But the older you are, the more death kind of lays its fangs into you on your hair, your beard hair, your body, your knees, your joints, your husbands and wives, your family and friends. The thing is, as we've talked about many times before, the Bible describes death as an enemy. And it is. It's a terrible enemy. People are quaking in their boots, you know, quite literally all around the United States of America right now and many other countries for one reason. We're afraid of death. You know why death is important to Christians if you've ever faced it. But the thing is, when we're focused on the death of Jesus, we're not celebrating it in some sort of macabre way that he suffered by having his body broken and his blood spilled. What we are celebrating, though, is that he loved us so much that he himself endured a terrible, horrific, awful, painful, agonizing death to save us from ourselves going through a terrible, painful, horrible, agonizing death. We proclaim the Lord's death during communion because 
it saves us from our own death because we've died with him, you know, in baptism, symbolically, we will live with him because his body was broken Our bodies won't have to be broken because his blood was gruesomely spilled out for my sins and your sins. Our blood will be preserved because we don't have to pay the price for our sins. So why do Christians eat bread and drink the fruit of the vine in church on Sunday mornings? Well, number one, because Jesus told us to do so as a way of remembering what he did for us, the good news of his death in our place, the gospel, the good news that he died for our sins. And if we would be saved, we look to him in faith, believing in that sacrifice. We're not saved by works, we're saved by what he did. So when we have communion, we remind ourselves of that. But not only that, reason number two, because it not only helps us remember the good news and be thankful for it, but it also helps us to proclaim the good news to our families, to our kids. Uh, every time my family and I, we got five kids, we take communion in church, we explain to our kids what we're doing. We remind ourselves what we're doing. So my children praise God, have grown up hearing about the gospel a lot more than just when we do communion. But in particular, when we do communion, we stop, we remember, we thank God for it, and it helps us to proclaim it to our children, to our friends, to any visitor that shows up. It's our way, communion is, of remembering and proclaiming the greatest news in history. So I want to close with a couple of paragraphs from friend of the show, Charles Spurgeon. He's talking about uh, the uh, the phrase is mentioned here, uh, this is my body, and that's how I actually found this little Spurgeonism from a sermon he preached at the Metropolitan Church, way, uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle, way back in the day. But this is sort of on the topic of communion, but my goodness, it's just really, really encouraging. So let's listen. This is what Spurgeon says. As to our Lord's going away from us into heaven, it does at first sight have a very sorrowful aspect. We would be glad if he would occupy that chair, you know, pointing to a chair on the stage tonight, and say, hey, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. Oh, what a happy crowd would you all be who love him if he stood in this pulpit tonight at church and showed you his hands and feet. We would stand at the posts of his doors for a whole week together to get a sight of him. If he had his throne in Jerusalem in the present, what pilgrimages would we all make if we might but come anywhere near his blessed person and might kiss the very dust he walked on? For what a precious Lord was he! Oh, in our times of sorrowing, if we could but once see his face, those dear lustrous eyes that would seem to say, I know your sorrows, for I felt the same. That blessed countenance that would speak consolation to us, though it said not a word, and would say to every mourner, I will help you, I have borne your burden of old. Would it not be a joy to see him, says Spurgeon? Surely I would be glad enough to cease my ministry, and you might be glad enough, however useful you might be in the church, to give up your work as the stars hide their diminished heads when the sun rises. But brethren, says Spurgeon, there is no cause for sorrow, for our sorrow is turned into joy. It is great gain to us to not have the Savior here. And do you see how? He said, if I go away, the Comforter will not come unto you. 
Now, says Spurgeon, is a nobler thing to have the Spirit of God dwelling in us than it would be to have Jesus Christ dwelling upon earth. For, as I have hinted, if he were on earth, we could not all get at him. He could only be in one place at one time. And how would the poor all around the world be able to get where he is? And if he walked through all the world in a natural way, it is only now and then that he would come to any one place. And so some of us would have to be pining our entire lives to see him. But now, instead, the Holy Spirit is here. The Holy Spirit is wherever believers are. Do you not know that he dwells in us forever? What a fantastically encouraging thing from Spurgeon. I've actually never thought it of it quite that way. If Jesus were here on earth, there would be millions of people, obviously, that wanted to see him and be touched by him, etc., etc., and would fly all around trying to find him and just touch the side of his garment. Well, he said, it's better for you if I go because I'm going to send my spirit to you, and my spirit, the comforter, can live in and walk with each one of you in a way that the human, fully human, and fully God, Son of God, Jesus on earth could not do. Man, that's good news. I hope that gets your blood boiling in a good sort of way. All right, let's read our other scriptures. Exodus chapter 9, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. In the third month from the very day the Israelites left the land of Egypt, they came to the Sinai wilderness. They traveled from Rephidim, came to the Sinai wilderness, and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Moses went up the mountain to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. After Moses came back, he summoned the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. Then the people responded together, We will do what the Lord has spoken. So Moses brought the people's words back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that people will hear when I speak with you and will always believe you. Moses reported the people's words to the Lord, and the Lord told Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. They must wash their clothes and be prepared by the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put boundaries for the people all around the mountain and say, Be careful that you don't go up on the mountain or touch its base. Anyone who touches the mountain must be put to death. No hand may touch him. Instead, he will be stoned or shot with arrows and not live, whether animal or human. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they may go up the mountain. Then Moses came down from the mountain to the people and consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. He said to the people, Be prepared by the third day. Do not have sexual relations with women. On the third day, when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. 
Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai at the top of the mountain. Then the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain, and he went up. The Lord directed Moses, Go down and warn the people not to break through to see the Lord, otherwise many of them will die. Even the priests who come near the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out in anger against them. Moses responded to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai since you warned us, put a boundary around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord replied to him, Go down and come back with Aaron. But the priests and the people must not break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out in anger against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Job 37 verse 1, continuing the words of Elihu. My heart pounds at this and leaps from my chest. Just listen to his thunderous voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He lets it loose beneath the entire sky, his lightning to the ends of the earth. Then there comes a roaring sound. God thunders with his majestic voice. He does not restrain the lightning when his rumbling voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For he says to the snow fall to the earth and the torrential rains, his mighty torrential rains serve as the sign to all mankind so that all men may know his work. The wild animals enter their lairs and stay in their dens. The windstorm comes from its chamber and the cold from the driving north winds. Ice is formed by the breath of God and watery expanses are frozen. He saturates clouds with moisture. He scatters his lightning through them. They swirl about, turning round and round in his direction, accomplishing everything he commands them over the surface of the inhabited world. He causes this to happen for punishment, for his land, or for his faithful love. Listen to this, Job. Stop and consider God's wonders. Do you know how God directs his clouds or makes their lightning flash? Do you understand how the clouds float, those wonderful works of him who has perfect knowledge? You whose clothes get hot when the south wind brings calm to the land, can you help God spread out the skies as hard as a cast metal mirror? Teach us what we should say to him. We cannot prepare our case because of our darkness. Should he be told that I want to speak? Can a man speak when he's confused? Now no one can even look at the sun when it is in the skies. After a wind is swept through and cleared the clouds away, yet out of the north he comes, shrouded in a golden glow. Awesome majesty surrounds him. The Almighty, we cannot reach him. He is exalted in power. He will not violate justice and abundant righteousness, therefore men fear him. He does not look favorably on any who are wise in heart. Luke chapter 22 verse 1. The festival of the unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put Jesus to death because they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. He went away and discussed with the chief priests and the temple police how he could hand him over to them. They were glad and agreed to give him silver, so he accepted the offer and started looking for a good opportunity to betray him to them when the crowd was not present. 
Then the day of unleavened bread came when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. Listen, he said to them, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him into the house he enters. Tell the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished room upstairs. Make the preparations there. So they went out and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But look, The hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. For the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to argue among themselves which of them it could be he was going to do it. Then a dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. But he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them have called themselves benefactors. It is not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who stood by me in my trials. I bestow on you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Lord, he told him, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, he said, the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. He also said to them, When I sent you out without money bag, traveling bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Not a thing, they said. Then he said to them, But now whoever has a money bag should take it, and also a traveling bag. And whoever doesn't have a sword should sell his robe and buy one. For I tell you, what is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted among the lawless. Yes, what is written about me is coming to its fulfillment. Lord, they said, look, here are two swords. That is enough, he told them. He went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he told them, pray that you may not fall into temptation. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and began to pray, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he got up from prayer and came to the disciples, he found them sleeping, exhausted from their grief. Why are you sleeping? he asked them. Get up and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, suddenly a mob came, and one of the twelve named Judas was leading them. He came near Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they asked, Lord, should we strike with a sword? Then one of them struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. But Jesus responded, No more of this! And touching his ear, he healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, temple police, and the elders who had come for him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Every day while I was with you in the temple, you never laid a hand on me. But this is your hour and the dominion of darkness. They seized him, led him away, and brought him into the high priest's house. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. They lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, and Peter sat among them. When a servant saw him sitting in the light and looked closely at him, she said, This man was with him too. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. After a little while, someone else saw him and said, oh, You're one of them too. Man, I am not, Peter said. About an hour later, another kept insisting. This man was certainly with him since he's a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter, so Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were holding Jesus started mocking and beating him. After blindfolding him, they kept asking, Prophesy, who was it that hit you? And they were saying many other blasphemous things to him. When daylight came, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, convened and brought him before their Sanhedrin. They said, If you are the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, if I do tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, You say that I am. Why do we need any more testimony, they said, since we've heard it ourselves from his mouth? Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. So then, dear friends, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room for us in your hearts. We've wronged no one, corrupted no one, taken advantage of no one. I, I don't say this to condemn you, since I have already said that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm very frank with you. I've got great pride in you. I'm filled with encouragement. I am overflowing with joy in all of our afflictions. In fact, when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. Instead, we were troubled in every way, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, 
comforted us by the arrival of Titus, and not only by his arrival, but also by the comfort he received from you. He told us about your deep longing, your sorrow, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I grieved you with my letter, I don't regret it. And if I regretted it, since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a while, I now rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance." For you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you. What a desire to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal. What justice! In every way you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter, so even though I wrote to you, it was not because of the one who did wrong or because of the one who was wronged, but in order that your devotion to us might be made plain to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. In addition to our own comfort, we rejoiced even more over the joy Titus had because his spirit was refreshed by all of you. For if I have made any boast to him about you, I have not been disappointed, but as I have spoken everything to you in truth, so our boasting to Titus has also turned out to be the truth. And his affection towards you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of all of you and how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that I have complete confidence in you. Amen. Bless you, dear friends. May the Lord be a great encouragement to you today, and may his word dwell richly in your hearts by faith in Jesus, the Son of God. Amen, and Godspeed.